The Principality of Monaco, a country spanning less than one square mile on the glamorous French Riviera, known for its billionaire residence, legendary casino, and one of the biggest races in Formula One. One man stands at the helm of this small nation, His Serene Highness Prince Albert II. Taking the throne after the 2005 death of his father, Prince Rainier, it was his mother, Hollywood icon Grace Kelly, who brought the region modern worldwide fame. It's her personality and her spirit that charmed people and made them want to want, want to come and, and visit and, and engage with Monaco. In 2017, the Olympian invited us to the Royal Palace, where we discuss everything from how he became interested in bobsledding. It was like a ride and a, uh, like a roller coaster ride with a, with a little more cold air on your face. To the pressures of ruling. And I could just walk away and, and have my own life, but that would be, first of all, uh, not respecting what my father and mother did for this country. Monaco's environmental efforts, and even President Trump. Your thoughts on President Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris Agreement? Well, of course, it's a terrible shame. But first on the In-Depth Podcast, the Prince remembers the thrill of representing his country at three Olympic Games. You're also obviously a passionate member of the IOC. Um, explain why um, one of your most prized Olympic possessions is your grandfather's Olympic ring uh, due to diamond skulls, I believe. Uh, this was not the diamond skulls uh, ring that, 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 that was kept uh, by other members of the family, but it was his ring from, from, from the 1920 games in, in Antwerp. And uh, my mother had it and she, and she gave it to me for, I think it was also my 21st birthday. And so I, I keep that uh, uh, very, very safely uh, put away. I've, I've worn it a couple times just for, uh, just to be able to say that I did wear it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but I think that's, that's also one of the inspirations for my, my determination to try to become an Olympic athlete. And I could have my stories mixed here, but isn't the significance of that ring um, that he was not allowed into this world-renowned Diamond Skulls uh, rowing event and uh, because he was a bricklayer and they said he had an unfair advantage and then he ends up at the Olympics beating the guy who won the Diamond Skulls? Yes, of course. Uh, but that, that, that's not why he got that ring. Right, but, but right. But the fact that he was an Olympian and the fact that he did compete successfully, and he was a three-time gold medalist, uh, but that he did beat uh, in the single skulls finals uh, the the rower who, who who had won in Henley. I think that was that was sweet revenge. But also the fact that uh, that his son, my uncle Jack, uh, was a double diamond skull winner at Henley in 1947 and 49. I think that was uh, that was even. Uh, even even sweeter revenge. And this being on your mother's side, uh, um, what led you to competing in the bobsled at the Olympics in the first place? I, I, I had seen, uh, I was able to uh, see the sport of bobsledding at different occasions, and, and one, one was at the Olympics in, in Lake Placid in 1980. So I, I kind of said to myself, I, maybe I'd like to try that someday, and, and that Opportunity came when, when I was on a skiing holiday in St. Moritz in Switzerland, and uh, they were 
offering, as they still do, uh, guest rides for, for uh, pe people who wanted to try it out with an experienced driver, of course. So I did a run that year, and, and I thought it was like a ride and a... a like a roller coaster ride with a, with a little more cold air on your face, uh, and but I I didn't think of pursuing it much in a competitive way until the following year where I I went back to St. Moritz and, and uh, did another guest ride, and then I I met a, a, a Swiss coach who said, well, if you'd like to try uh, like to try your hand at driving. One of these things, we have a Lapsa driving school in a few months, and and, uh, and we'd love to have you. And then, you know, when you start getting involved and things start going pretty well, then you think about putting a team together and think about uh, doing different competitions. And then before I knew it, uh, two years later, I was uh, qualified for the Olympics. And so, uh, But I never thought that I'd uh, be able to... to uh, take up a new sport and, and be able to go that far with it. You ultimately carried the Olympic flag in three uh, mm -hmm. Olympics, um, but describe the emotion of that very first time carrying the flag. It, it was very emotional, uh, not only because you, you realize that you're at the, big, the biggest sport and cultural event of the planet, and you're walking into a a stadium full of people uh, that are cheering you on, but you realize that you're that you're representing your country, and uh, and uh, that a lot of people at at home are watching you, and uh, and, uh, and not only at home, but uh, my different uh, family members uh, uh, in Europe and in the States were were watching as well, and of course I thought of. My parents. I thought of my grandfather. I thought of my uncle, and I thought of a lot of people who have uh, taught me the the values and and uh, of sport and and the, and the great uh, the, the great educational uh, tool that it is to to have have people realize that uh, you know that you can you can be your that you can try to be your best at something and that you have to follow your dreams and, and, and try to make them happen. How exciting was living with all the other Olympians when you were in uh, competition? I mean, it seemed to be from reading the reports that everybody thought, oh, you know, he's royalty, he's not going to be living with all the other athletes. And you're like, what do you mean? I'm right here with the guys. You know, I think, I, and I understood this, pretty early on, also because I was already involved with the Olympic movement. And I knew the importance that an Olympic village had, and, and I wanted to be a part of that experience. And there was, there was no way I, I wasn't going to uh, be right there in the middle, firstly to, to, to stay with the team, but, but also to, to get that experience of meeting athletes and officials from all over the world. and to. Uh, engage with them and to, you know, to get the full, get the full effect and of, of an Olympic experience. And I think it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry for, for, for those athletes who, uh, for 
practical reasons, did not stay in Olympic Village mm -hmm. and, and did not have that experience. So this had to be an exciting time of your life. I mean, you're an Olympian, you're royalty, you're single, you're like dating models. Um, not like, only. What? No, I didn't only date models. Right. Um, <laughs> but like going back to that time, like what did you think of all the attention that was paid to your personal life back then? You know, I, I didn't think uh, didn't think too much about it. It didn't really impede me that 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 much. I, I tried, you know, to go about my own way and what I thought was uh, was right. It, it's only when uh, media becomes too obtrusive and 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 too wants uh, wants to dwell too deep into your personal life that then you get uh, uh, you put up a. a Protection and, and uh, will find the find your find your space to be able to protect yourself and, and those that are important to you uh, around you and it's it's still the same today uh, but uh, I never whatever I did I didn't try to do it for for any any sort of publicity and right I didn't, certainly didn't. I would have chosen a different sport if I if I wanted to be publicized. Bobsledding bob back then it was a very small-time sport right. and only really existed at, uh, at an event like like the Olympic Games, and it probably wouldn't wouldn't survive if it wasn't on the Olympic program. Over the years, mm -hmm. growing up, you played soccer, javelin throwing, handball, judo, swimming, tennis, skiing, rowing, sailing squash, bobsled, um, how much of a desire growing and, up? And modern pentathlon. And modern pentathlon. Which is, as you know, a combination of five different sports, uh, fencing, uh, swimming, riding, shooting, and running. And so I did that toward the end of my bobsled career, and, and I just did a few fun charity competitions, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible sport. I'd, I'd always wanted to try it. Uh, and it's uh, it's very demanding. You solicit different, uh, of course, different uh, muscles and different different uh, uh, mindsets of uh, different sports. And 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 it's uh, but it's very interesting to try to combine all of these uh, all, all of these activities. How much of a desire growing up did you have to be a pro athlete? I never really thought about being a pro athlete, but but I wanted to see as as far as I can go and. and I probably could have dedicated myself more to, to a sport, like bobsledding, a, a little earlier on, and I probably would have would have had better results. But um, I wanted to try a lot of different things, and, and I was curious about a whole array of different sports. And of course, a lot of them I was able to try and, and was able to have a, a certain competitive level. If not a head of state, what do you think? you would have been interested in doing? Either would have loved to have worked for an international organization, uh, like the UN, or some, something multilateral, and, or, a, or I, I could have been interested in becoming a teacher also. Really? I love working with kids, yeah. What were the pressures that you felt, if any, growing up as royalty? The pressures, basically, of, of any one, even if you're at a younger age, you're you're thrown into public situations, and 
I did my first official unveiling of a plaque when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I when do you really a, become conscious of it, though? You, I, I guess it was gradually and around that age, probably four or five, or uh, that you, you kind of notice that you're in a bit of a different family and a bit of a different, uh, uh, with people having different expectations of you, and people making sort of a fuss over you. It's not always easy, and not always easy to, to come to terms with. It, it wasn't? No. What, it, what got it, to you then? It, it still isn't in, in many ways. But like, what, what about it? I consider myself uh, uh, a private person uh, most of the time, and so it's hard to perform in a very public situation and have to do, of course, public, public appearances and speeches, and d- depending on what, what it is and, and, what, and what the situation is. And you, of course, you, you get to meet great people, but uh, sometimes it, it does get, uh, and even at a younger age, you, you kind of try to figure your way around, but uh, at a later stage in life, then it becomes a little, it's just a little tedious. But there are things that you have to do, and, and you have to sort of grin and bear it and, and push forward. Looking back, uh, how strange, if at all, is it to basically have had your career chosen for you without having a say in it? You know, you kind of learn pretty early on to say, well, I, I don't really have a choice. I, I mean, I could just walk away and... and have my own life, but that would be, first of all, uh, uh, not respecting what, what my father and mother did for this country mm-hmm. uh, and trying to keep that moral obligation uh, that there is to lead this nation and, and to be the head of state. Your father, Prince Renier, uh, longest serving monarch of modern time, when it was coming closer to the time uh, to take over, what are you thinking? While you're, you're thinking, uh, am I, am I really ready for this? And and you know what 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 will happen when you know you don't have, in my case, uh, father that I have to report to. So it's it's kind of daunting that 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 uh, you you don't have that that uh, that safety valve of of having someone above you that. that a can I can help you or can give you different advice. Your dad uh, once said about you, at least as I, I read it, your only issue is you're too nice. Uh, your reaction? Well, you know, it, it was it's 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 a question of character. Uh, of course, my my personality is that of I think openness and 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 trying to en- engage with people and and to. Uh, you know, to have have a positive attitude, uh, and some people, of course, see did perceive that as as being as being a weakness. I, I personally think it's a it's more of an, of an advantage. But uh, why would people perceive it as a weakness? Well, you know, if you're too nice, then you, you, you're you're perceived as, as saying yes to everything, and then you get uh, uh, you slowly get pushed over. But but that's far from being the case. Well, right, there's a difference between being nice and saying yeah, yes but to some, everything. Some, some people make that connection. Did that bother you? Yeah, of course it did. Because uh, constantly you have to think that you have to prove yourself. And that 
I knew that that was going to happen. What do you think you learned from your dad? To look at, uh, taught me also to, to trust very, very few people who outside of your, of your staff or your, of your close circle and, and to, uh, you know, constantly, constantly question yourself and, and think that is this the right way to go and is this the right, the right attitude and, and to always try to get a second opinion. I spoke to a couple of people close to you who said uh, he was really hard on you. Um, in what ways? I think he was demanding and, and uh, wanted me to do the right thing. And he felt the responsibility to, to bring me along to, to where I'd be ready to, to take over. But um, I think he was, I, I can't say that he was hard, but he was demanding. And it's probably, probably what I needed at, at a certain period of time. How do you think your relationship uh, with him impacted you? as a father? Well, you know, I think it's difficult to say, of course, I'm a very proud father and, I, and they're still very, very young kids. We're going to try to bring them up in the, the most normal way. But my, my parents did that to my sisters and myself, although they explained what, what, what was happening and where we were and, and, and what was asked of us. But, but um, we had a as n normal a, a family life as possible, I, I think, in, in terms of spending time together in, in private situations, and, and they, they made sure that we, that we had, a, uh, of course, a, a good education and, and, and cared for all our needs, but they, they really wanted us to, to you know, to have uh, time together and to go on trips together. And it was easier to do in those days uh, to try to escape the media. It's, it's, it's a little harder now. Because everybody has a camera. Because everybody has a cell phone and <laughs> everybody can take pictures or films of, of us and, or of anybody in, in, in a private situation and then put it on, the, put it on social media. So it's, that's, that part's going to be difficult with, uh, with our children. But... Um, I'm going to try to, we're going to, of course, try to uh, educate them in the best way possible. But uh, we want to pr protect them also and to uh, have some, some great private moments together. After you met uh, Princess Charlene, what made you realize that relationship was different and special? I think that relationship was, was different. And special because, of course, we had that, the love for, for sport uh, that uh, brought us together. And, but it's also her, her character and her, her joie de vivre, but her, her enthusiasm for, okay. yeah, her enthusiasm and, for, and her love for life. But by the way, what, uh, what language do you think in? Swahili. <laughs> I was curious because you speak a... No, because I thought I'd, I'd be... I'd, I'd help you with your French language experiments that by, by teaching you a French expression. <laughs> but anyway, um, the fact that she set up her own foundation to, to, to help kids and to prevent, uh, uh, prevent them from drowning, uh, or to prevent uh, uh, not, not only younger kids, but a adults as well, and her, her learn to swim programs and her willingness that she has to, to put to, uh, sport as an as an education means uh, forward, I think speak, speaks speaks uh, 
highly of her character and of her care for others. Obviously, in a very, a very accomplished swimmer, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in her own right. What, what about sport? You guys share in terms of passion. Well, of course, swimming, and I, and I was, I was a modest swimmer, uh, competitive swimmer when I was when I was younger. So, and I was still, and that's how we met because I was, and I still am, uh, president of the Monaco Swimming Association. You guys ever raced? Uh, not really. I, I. I think we'd all know what the outcome of that would be. So, uh, be entertaining. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's that that fact that forced the sport that brought us together. But 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 not only her, her love of nature as well, and 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 uh, the fact that she really uh, cares about uh, about other people, but, but 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 especially about the younger generations. I think that is. Uh, extremely uh, appealing and and, and uh, I want to help her in, in that uh, in that way also how have kids changed your life when you're a parent uh, you, you have a heightened sense of responsibility toward these toward these children and responsibility for their well-being and for and for for their safety but also of course for for their education and you want to, you know, go about the best way possible uh, to ensure that they that they get all of these things at, at the right time. Yeah, the twins obviously live here w with you at the palace. Uh, how do you create you and the princess a sense of normalcy for them as they grow up? It comes in different ways and different forms. You, you, well, first of all, you have to try to spend as much time as you can with them and, and to play with them and to make them feel comfortable around their surroundings. Of course, it's, it's hard to do in, in, in this palace where, it's, uh, where there are a lot of people walking around. We're very, very lucky to have another property that's, uh, that's up the mountain and not, not too far from Monaco, but uh, uh, far away enough to be uh, in a in in a wonderful natural surrounding with a farm with a, with a di different uh, areas where where they can play and where they can learn about nature and where they can see animals and and uh, and have a great uh, a great environment in which to grow up in. Your mother, uh, Princess Grace, what will you or have you uh, told your kids about their late grandma? Not a very lengthy conversation, but just pointing her out in different pictures, I think, was a, was a first step, and and uh, they they know how to recognize her now, and and recognize my father also in, in different pictures, and uh, and other members of the family. I think it, but it'll be gradual. I, I don't think they're they're ready to hear long, lengthy. Uh, uh, um, Stories about their grandparents yet, but it's just by little, by little increments like that. Um, you know, I mentioned or alluded to earlier the kind of sense of normalcy you've been quoted as saying before that your mom really gave you when you were growing up. What did she do? What did she do to to, to make us? Uh -huh. Well, she. Uh, how about let's start with cooking breakfast for us, uh, going out. Uh, Taking us to to to, to the playground, uh, taking us to school, 
uh, coming to pick us up at school when, when she could, of course. And sometimes she, she had other duties, but uh, uh, she was very present. Very, she would. Uh, well, both parents would would come and uh, come and see us to bed, but uh, um, she was, you know, uh, always there when when we needed her, but but always willing to to uh, to uh, take us uh, personally to to different places and, and travel with us too, or have us travel with her, rather. And she was obviously, prior to Monaco, a hugely accomplished, successful Hollywood actress. Her and Prince Renier fall in love, um, and she moves to Monaco, and I believe it had a huge impact on tourism. What would you say um, she did over the years that most positively impacted Monaco? I think it's basically her personality that... Uh, that was able to not only be a great ambassador for, for Monaco and, and, and showcase Monaco in a very positive light, but she was able to attract different kinds of, of prominent people here. Of course, figures of the performing arts, but, but also different business leaders. And it's her personality and her generosity of, of, of heart and, and spirit that, that, uh, that uh, charmed people and, and made them want to, want, want to come and and visit and, and engage with Monaco. She obviously passed away uh, tragically in a car accident at uh, still a very young age. Um, you were having breakfast mm -hmm. at the time and your father comes in. Um, how well do you still recall uh, what he said? Well, basically he said that we, that we had to we had to go down to the hospital because uh, uh, Mom and, and Stephanie had an accident, and so we. Uh, I didn't think twice about it. Went went down, went down with him, and and uh, Carolyn as well. And of course, it was a very shocking moment, and, and one of. Uh, you know, you, you're not quite sure what to think or what to. Uh, of course, you're, you're you think that. And things are going to improve, and that uh, it's uh, it's not as bad an accident as as was as you thought it was, and and so you know those 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 few hours there were were very very tense and very emotional. How long did it take you to realize what the eventual outcome was going to be? It wasn't until uh, later that evening that it became apparent uh, that the outcome w w was not going to be was what was not going to be a good one your sister Stephanie was in the car at mm -hmm. the time as well and obviously recovered what did that process entail for her of getting better well it, it took a very long time for her to, to to recover from this and it was a very painful painful recollection for her and uh, it took a number of years for her to be totally, uh, to have come to terms with that. You know, just the, the pain of being in that, in that car with, with our mother and not being able to, to, to uh, 
to, 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 to pull her out or to, to have a different outcome. She was injured, of course, also. Uh, but I think it, it, it's a traumatic experience, and it would be for anybody. How did it affect you, and how long did it take to start to feel normal again? You know, it always takes, uh, takes a while. Uh, you, you recover thanks to your other family members and, and to your friends and to, to people that are dear to you to, and provide comfort. And, and, but, it, but it also takes a few years to, to really fully come to terms with that. What about your dad? Well, pretty, uh, pretty obvious that uh, he was deeply affected and the, he, he wasn't quite the same man as he was uh, before the accident. You and your family uh, put on a museum display, uh, which I think rightly uh, honored your mom. And I understand from comments you've made that was a um, really a kind of a collective process in gathering hundreds of uh, items from her life. What was involved with pulling all that together? It was it was both uh, interesting as it, it was a feeble word, but but it was. It was a wonderful experience to, to uh, be able to, with the help of, of uh, d d different staff members here, but to go through some of, uh, uh, some of her dresses and some of her jewelry and some of her different little artifacts, letters also, uh, and to uh, recollect the, those moments and what, they, and what they meant at that, or what they mean now for, for people who see them for the first time, uh, but, that, but that we, uh, her children, know the history of, of most of these items uh, is, was, a, was really a wonderful moment. How did you find uh, the comedy script of hers that was never uh, made, and what was the script about? I don't know if it would work well now. It would, it would certainly have worked in the 60s. And, and, and that time era, but it's a, uh, it, it would have been a fun little comedy, but it's a, it's a shame that, that, that she never got it, uh, uh, that she never got a home, uh, other people to read it, and that, and then it was never uh, produced, but uh, it, it, she had a lot of fun writing it. Monaco is certainly synonymous with Formula One's yeah. Monaco Grand Prix. Describe what Monaco is like that week. Uh, Monaco changes its uh, face pretty radically. It's our biggest event of the year, uh, not only in terms of attendance, uh, but in terms of different, uh, different side events that, uh, that happen here. So it goes way beyond just, just motorsport. And uh, so you have the F1 and supporting events. Uh, and of other formulas that, that, that race also on the same w weekend, but there are a lot of different charity and social events, and it's, uh, of course, the opportunity for, for d different, uh, uh, different sponsors and different uh, partners of F1 to, to do some corporate enter entertainment. So it's, uh, and you know, and w when you talk to the drivers, as I have over the years, it's, it's their... Uh, it's the Grand Prix that they not only want to race in, uh, but they, that they want to win, because it's uh, it has been 
historically uh, one of the hardest races on the on the, on the circuit, and uh, one that is the most challenging, even if it's the shortest right. course. Uh, but in, in U.S. terms, it'd probably be the same significance of the NFL Super Bowl or yeah. you know the Daytona 500 for NASCAR. That is the exactly. premier event, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the first one you attended was in 1965. Um, first one that I remember being almost trackside uh, in an apartment overlooking the track. But yeah, that it, it it was uh, 1965. What, so. if anything, outside of that, do you recall? My, I just, you know, different images, different uh, uh, that, that that credible back then for uh, for, for a seven-year-old uh, the. The sense of speed that those cars gave, the the noise, the the smell, the uh, uh, just the overall uh, incredible magnitude of it all for 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 a young kid, it was uh, it was unforgettable. I think there's, and I know you're going to end up correcting me when I say this, but somewhere in the neighborhood of forty thousand people uh, that live here, uh, around a third of which are millionaires and billionaires. Um, for some. Um, Monaco might be synonymous with banking secrecy and uh, any of the negative issues associated with that. Um, but I know when you became ruler that that was really important to you to address. Um, how do you go about combating that? Uh, I think we've uh, uh, signed uh, scores of, of different agreements uh, in f- fiscal tra- transparency and mm-hmm. exchange of information with uh, with over 30 countries now. And then other measures uh, uh, in, in our banking system that make it, uh, that make it in such a way now that it's, uh, that there is v- virtually no more banking secrecy issues. And uh, we've, we've adhered to, uh, uh, and we've been uh, sanctioned in, in a positive way right. by uh, different organizations, by different oversight organizations t- uh, that uh, have taken us off the uh, black and gray lists. And so I think uh, we're on a very good way. And, and, we've, and that, was, that was the idea that I was able to express in my, in my opening speech on, on my inauguration. Well, so. And it's amazing to consider you know, how far it's come to because I think when you first took over there were something like 10 times the bank accounts as um, residents. So it had to be an enormous um, issue to work through. Um, like, how do you go about figuring that out? Well, you, uh, fortunately, there, there was a very good team, not only in our, uh, in our finance and uh, uh, the equivalent of our uh, Treasury Department and our Finance Department, and uh, different uh, heads of, of different organizations. Our our banking, uh, the, the head of the Monaco Bank Association. We were able to talk to them uh, at, at different meetings, and they they uh, they all agreed to to uh, follow those to, to follow those guidelines and and to follow that process. Hard conversations at times because I'd imagine that hurts some of their business. You know, you, you, you really had to convince them to, to look look at the issue in a, a different way. And then they didn't want to be the first ones to, to go down that road. I said, uh, look at the other countries, not only in Europe, but, but elsewhere that are 
changing their ways, and, and we, we cannot escape this, uh, this process and this, and this way of doing things in a more open and more transparent way. What did you write in your letter to President Trump shortly after he was elected? I was hoping that, uh, that the U.S. would still uh, be a significant uh, uh, actor in not only the fight against climate change, but would help uh, still lead the effort in, in keeping our oceans uh, uh, as, as healthy as possible. And that was uh, because I know that, and I know this firsthand because I was able to attend uh, different, different conferences uh, where Secretary Kerry was present. And these were very significant uh, conferences for uh, a better understanding and, and better uh, governance of our oceans. And some, some great measures came out of these meetings. And so I was hoping uh, that uh, that the new administration would would uh, uh, still carry on w with that effort. Did he respond? He has not responded yet. Your thoughts on the U.S.'s decision, President Trump's, to try to pull out of the Paris Agreement? Well, of course, it's a terrible shame. What was very encouraging is the, the reaction by uh, governors of certain states, by the mayors of certain large cities in the U.S., and by different business leaders, that they would uh, stick to what they had committed to, uh, and that they were determined to uh, cut their carbon emissions by a, a significant amount. And uh, and so I think that there's that there's still hope, and that uh, and that uh, the U.S. has shown uh, over the years that it. it it has rebounded from different situations in a, in, in a very positive way, and I hope that this will, this will also be the case. I would imagine your family, much like uh, the public, is grateful for everything you're doing uh, in Monaco to help combat global warming and climate change. Uh, why commit to a 50% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030 and carbon neutrality uh, by 2050? Well, because although they, they do seem like ambitious goals and ambitious targets, we, we thought it, it was possible for a country of our size. But uh, we have to set those kind of goals to, to help make a difference and, and, and have a significant impact. But I think everyone uh, in business here and, and the different government entities and different, uh, different organizations here have... Uh, saluted this effort and, and, and are behind it. The Paris Agreement, oh, how it's been talked about so much recently. Um, but, you know, researchers have since come out and said, even with the agreement that was reached at the summit, they've since learned that temperature over the century will still rise somewhere between 2.6 to 3.1 degrees Celsius, which I believe is the tipping point still of irreversible consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so what else do you think uh, needs to be done to help combat this? Well, let's at least, uh, if those figures are true, and, and I have no reason to believe that, 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 that it's not a, a a reasonable or adequate estimate. Uh, let's try to do everything we can to mitigate that. Uh, it's not, uh, we're just not going to sit back and wait for those temperatures to rise and 
and go about a, a business-as-usual scenario. Uh, we all know, and, and some economists have been able to prove this, that uh, if we stay in the same ways and means of production of, of energy or, and in other areas, uh, it will cost us twice as more to go about our lives uh, producing energy that, that way than it is to, to revert to renewables. So knowing that, let's move to renewables in a pretty significant way. You, uh, you know, finally admitted to what people uh, long suspected, which is that you're the first uh, bipolar head of state, <laughs> uh, having visited both the North and South Pole on expeditions, one in uh, 2006, the other 2009. Um, and for a long time, I mean, I think you were in Antarctica for like a month, the uh, 17 days, 17 days uh, the highlight of both of those trips collectively for you would be what? Both trips were absolutely amazing experiences. Uh, first, the Arctic was uh, a great uh, endurance uh, of, uh, and, and a great experience with uh, traveling so many miles on, on the ice, on the ice cap there on the Arctic Ocean with, uh, of course, with a team of people, but with, uh, on, on dog sled was, uh, was an absolutely amazing experience. And, and uh, the, the beauty of, of, of these ice landscapes uh, and seascapes, uh, but knowing that it's a, it, it's a very harsh environment, but, but very fragile at the same time. And uh, this was only enhanced by going to Antarctica and visiting uh, some 20-plus uh, different research stations uh, all around Antarctica. Um, and uh, seeing and being able to talk to people that, that uh, uh, spent a lot of time there studying different, uh, in different ways, in, in different subjects. Uh, it goes, of course, from, uh, uh, from climate studies to, to ice core sample studies to, uh, um, um, to, to meteorology, to uh, astronomy, uh, and, to, and to other, other sciences. But uh, seeing the, the, uh, the, the, the magnitude of, uh, of this incredible continent, you can almost call it a continent, uh, but also seeing the, uh, there also there was a sense of, of, uh, of an unforgiving place. Uh, the ice is very daunting and very powerful, uh, but also a very fragile environment. And that uh, it can be disrupted and it already, the process has already started, uh, that things are changing there. And uh, they're changing at, a, at an alarming rate. And if we don't try to at least slow down this process, then uh, of course we're, we're headed for, uh, for a difficult future, not only for us, but, but for the next generations as well. Really a pleasure. Thank you so much, appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Prince Albert II. Head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for highlights of our time in Monaco as he shows us the best that his principality has to offer from the famous yacht club to the curving city streets of the Grand Prix. Also, remember to rate, review, subscribe, and thanks again for listening.